Well, as we continue in worship and we go to God's word, we find ourselves in the second Sunday in Advent. Advent, this Latin word meaning arrival. We find ourselves in between two arrivals, the arrival of God in the person of Jesus at Christmas. That's what we celebrate. And in anticipation of God's second arrival where Christ will come again. And look, we say this every year. We talk about Christmas. We talk about God coming in the person of Jesus. And yet it can become so rote. It can become so like, yeah, that's something we just do. But if it doesn't produce awe and wonder that the God of the universe would come as a person, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. In this sermon series, we want to to reinvigorate, to restore wonder once again. That's a big goal. But God has made you and me, God has made us to wonder. Literally, like God has made us as human beings to wonder. Our brains are shaped that way. There's a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere in our brains. And we tend to live in our left hemisphere, the mechanical that we want to just figure it out. We want to just understand and, and, and tell me what I'm supposed to think and what I'm supposed to believe and how this is supposed to go. And then there's the right side of the brain. The right side of the brain, I feel like, is knocking on the door saying, hello, I'm here. I'm here. God's made me. I'm part of you. I'm made to wonder, to be curious, to imagine And both sides of our brain are needed for us to be whole. And so in this series, we are connecting once again to the right side of our brain a bit and and wondering what does it look like for us to see this, this story that might be so familiar to us, but to see it with new eyes, to be able to ask questions, to imagine, to allow it to stir in us and create a sense of awe, wonder. It's beautiful. We need to restore our wonder. We need to restore our sense of curiosity. And Pastor Drew last week talked about restoring the wonder in the frame. That oftentimes we have this, we have this frame that we see life through, that we see ourselves through, we see others. And more importantly, we see God through this frame. And we think that we can kind of box God in And yet Pastor Drew is encouraging us to expand our frame, to wonder at what God might be doing in ways in which we've never even imagined God might do them. What would it look like for us to wonder in that frame? And today, we're also expanding that frame to wonder in the shame. Wonder in the shame that's in the, Christ, the Christmas story. That, that might sound very odd. Like, I thought this was Christmas. What are we doing talking about shame? Well, let me, let me guide you in this. Let's go to God's word. Let's go to scripture. We're gonna to go to God's grand story found in Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18, we'll be reading through verses 25. And as you go there at the end of this story, like I do every week and like we do every week, We're going to say, this is the reading of God's word. And if you believe it to be true, join me in saying, thanks be to God. God's grand story found in Matthew chapter one. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, 
took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, there are some... Christian beliefs that drive me crazy. Wait, let me rephrase that. There are some beliefs that are held by Christians that drive me crazy. There's a big difference. Just because a Christian holds a belief doesn't mean it's a Christian belief. You know what I'm saying? Like there are some things that I, we as Christians hold to be true and they can be crazy making. And one of them is that shame is good. That shame is good for you as a Christian, that somehow shame helps you grow, helps you develop, that it can be a good thing because it it draws your attention to the sin in your life or that it somehow keeps you from sinning into the future, that we have this idea, whether it's spoken or unspoken or we articulate it or we just just assume and we just, just kind of reiterate it over and over again that, that somehow guilt and shame is good for us. Guilt and shame. Good because it somehow keeps us from sinning. Do do we really think that guilt and shame is a Christian idea? The Bible doesn't teach, God does not teach us to embrace guilt and shame. What's your relationship with shame? After all, we did just celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas is coming and New Year's. And oftentimes around these holidays, there can be some comments that are shame-based. Let me give you some examples. Have you ever heard anything like this? Some of them might say to you, after all I've done for you, you can't even come home for the holidays? Or you really should visit them. They are your parents after all. Or there might be someone that says, there are people out there that need your help and you purchased a cruise on Giving Tuesday? Or what am I supposed to do with myself if, if you can't go? What am I supposed to do with myself? So you hear these statements and these people that say these things likely want something from you. They want something from me. And you know what? They're angry. They're angry because they don't get it. They don't get it from us. And so there's this idea that if I use shame, that if I use shame, it's a, it's a powerful motivator. It can be a way in which I can change your behavior. I can change your mind. And yet they are using the power 
of guilt and shame and the, and the power of guilt and shame is a destructive motivator. Oh, it's powerful. Don't get me wrong, it's powerful, but it is destructive. How are guilt and shame destructive? Shame can really mess us up. I mean, I don't know that I have to tell you this, but we know this to be true. It destroys. It destroys our relationship with ourselves. It destroys our relationships with one another. It destroys our relationship with God. Shame is so destructive. Whether it's shame that we carry, that we hold, or whether it's shame that's been cast on us by somebody else, shame is so destructive. The result of this destructive shame manifests itself in at least two ways. These, these two ways in which we respond to shame in our life. The first is that we hide. We hide. We, we, we do this thing where we try to run away from ourselves, from others, and from God. We hide in our shame. The second is that we try to cover it up. We try to pretend like it's not there. We try to cover ourselves from any kind of vulnerability with ourselves, with others, and with God. We hide and we cover. And the thing about these two things that, that we do in our shame, it's not unique to us. This is what we've been doing since the beginning of time. What do I mean? The first ever couple, Adam and Eve, when faced with shame, had these very two responses. They hid and they covered. And so as we go to, back to the text, I think it's really important for us to have this frame as we look at this text. What does it mean? What is the story like as we look through it through the lens of shame? Shame is so destructive. And yet here I am, I think I've said shame, I don't even know how many times, and it's in December, and you're like, I thought, Pastor, you're supposed to be talking about the Christmas story. Like, that's what this is. This is the season. What does this have to do with the Christmas story? If we don't wonder in the shame, then we won't fully understand the Christmas story. We won't fully realize what's actually happening in this amazing, awe-inspiring, wonderful story that is Christmas. And so we have to, we have to address shame. So let's go back to the story and wonder at what God was doing amidst the shame. We're gonna go back to Matthew chapter one and we're gonna start with verse 18. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. And I want us to stop there. In this way, of all the ways that Jesus could have advented, of all the ways in which God could have shown up in our midst, the ways that God could have announced his arrival, God chose to do it in this way. What way was that? Well, verse 18, when his mother, Jesus' mother Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child. Let's stop there. So Mary and Joseph, they're engaged, but they're not married. They're not even living together. And Mary's pregnant. Really, God? Really? Like, this way? This is how you want to choose to advent among us? Now, I, listen, I highlight this aspect of the story, not to cast more shame on anyone who finds themselves 
pregnant outside of wedlock or this is part of your story. That's not what I'm doing. I'm, I, I don't want to do that. Likely, if this is or was your story, you've already had enough shame. We've already cast a lot of shame towards those who find themselves in this situation. I bring this up as the reality that Mary and Joseph are in a culture that is a, a hundred times more shame-based than the culture that we find ourselves in today. And God chooses. And Matthew highlights the reality that the story of Christmas starts in this way. This would have been scandalous. And I find the last line of verse 18 so interesting it says that she was found to be with child, found to be with child. How was Mary found to be with child? How did Joseph learn that Mary was pregnant? Have you ever asked that question? I mean, I wonder, I wonder, did she tell him herself? I wonder, was there like morning sickness? Is that what gave it away? I wonder if, was she kind of showing? Was there like a little baby bump there? Like, how did Joseph know? To better understand Matthew chapter one, we have to actually go to the gospel according to Luke because the gospel according to Luke chapter one, starting in verse 34, actually happened before Matthew chapter one. See, the Matthew's story is from Joseph's perspective. But if we're gonna talk about pregnancy of any kind, look, we really need to know the woman's side of the story. We gotta know Mary's perspective. And so we gotta go to Luke. Before we get to Luke chapter one, Mary was met by an angel of the Lord. Does it sound familiar? We just read this. Joseph was met by an angel of the Lord. Mary too was met by an angel of the Lord. And the angel continues to affirm in Mary that you have found favor with God, that God is with you, that you don't have to be afraid, Mary. And the angel meets with Mary and, and what was the news? I mean, okay, I found favor with God. I, I I am blessed. I, I don't have to be afraid of what? You're pregnant. <laughs> I mean, basically, that's what the angel came to share was uh, you're about to be pregnant. Listen to the story in Luke chapter one, starting in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy and he'll be called the son of God. I just want to stop there. Does that not create wonder? Mary's like, uh, how can this be? I'm a virgin. How is this even possible? We believe this to be true. It should stir in us wonder. How can this be? How can this be true? Oh my gosh, what does this mean? And we go on in verse 36, it says, and now your relative, the angel is saying this to Mary, your relative in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary said, here I am I, the servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. I just love that last line from Mary. So courageous. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a remarkably brave statement 
by Mary. Mary knows that she is saying yes to something significant, but she also knows that she's saying yes to something that, wow, could be potentially dangerous. I mean, Mary knows the possibility of shame that could come from her family, that could come from her friends, that could come from her faith community, from her neighbors in this context. To find yourself pregnant outside of marriage, there would be a lot of shame that would be cast upon you. There is no way that Mary would have said yes to this had it not come from the Lord. In a society of shame, Mary was trusting in the word of the Lord. So what did Mary do with the news? Did she run to Joseph, her fiance, to tell him this good news? No. She did what we've been doing since the very beginning of time. When faced with the threat of shame, Mary ran and hid. Mary ran and hid. You see it in Luke Chapter 1, verse 39, in those days, in this time, at this time, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Look, this wasn't like Mary was visiting her cousin that's just down the street. They're not like sharing the same cul-de-sac, going to the same Trader Joe's or playing at the same parks. Mary is going to her cousin Elizabeth in this hill country town that's a hundred miles away. Look, I'm a wannabe ultra runner. (laughs) Uh, I don't pretend to even know what it would be like to run a hundred miles. And yet Mary was traveling a hundred miles in this scene. And if you're traveling, I imagine if you're walking, you're walking somewhere between two and three miles an hour. Let's just say that she's walking six hours per day. It would have taken her a week, but it says that she was uh, running with haste. I don't know what Mary running with haste looks like. I don't imagine Mary being an ultra runner either, but let's just say that she bumps that two to three miles per hour up to a three to four like speed walking pace. It could have taken her four days. She gets out of Dodge and goes towards her her cousin, Elizabeth. However long, Mary wasn't wasting any time. And I wonder, I wonder, do you wonder why? Why? Why was Mary traveling 100 miles from her her hometown in a hurry? Some think that Mary was just so excited. She just wanted to tell her cousin, Elizabeth, this news Others think that she needed the support of Elizabeth to process what it means for her to be mothering the Messiah. But I wonder, and I invite you to wonder that there might be more to this story that meets the eye. Mary knows what this news means and she knows that her community would not approve of her pregnancy. At best, they would cast shame on her, but at worst, She's in danger of losing her life. See, Mary wasn't running with good news. She was running for her life and she was running from shame. Running where? Well, she's running to the only person that she knows that could understand the shame that she was in danger of carrying. 
the shame that was being cast upon her, her cousin Elizabeth. Did you catch it? Did you catch how Elizabeth was defined, how she was described? She was described as someone in her old age, someone who was defined as a person barren. The shame, the shame that Elizabeth would be carrying in that, in that identifying characteristic, that, that, that identity that her community was placing upon her. And then in this story, we find ourselves faced with two women, one woman who's pregnant outside of marriage and another woman who is old without children. From a woman in the first century, I can't even imagine. One, I'm a man, so I can't imagine, but I can't even imagine the shame that would have been cast on both of them. N.T. Wright has this, is quoted saying, and I love this, God's purposes and plans are first revealed in a private meeting between two women on the edge of society. And so we hear this part of the story in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 41. In verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. John jumped. <laughs> and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry. Elizabeth is shouting at this point. What did she shout? Was Mary sh met with a shout of shame? No. See, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't shout shame. No, Elizabeth shouted this. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me? What the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. Oh, and blessed is she who believed that there would be the fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord. See, Mary wasn't met with a shout of shame. She was met with a shout of blessing. You are blessed and your child is blessed. I am overcome with joy, Elizabeth says, because you are blessed. Can we just wonder for a moment? Can we wonder in the shame that was held by Mary and Elizabeth. It's no wonder that the Holy Spirit would be shouting blessing because this is what God does. This is what God has always been doing. This is exactly what Mary and Elizabeth needed to hear. So for those of us who are carrying shame, whether there be shame that we hold because of something that we've done or the shame that we carry because it's been cast upon us by someone else, we don't need to hear a shout of shame. Don't we need to hear a shout of blessing? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Blessed is the, are the poor in spirit, not because being poor in spirit is a blessing, but because those of us who are poor in spirit will experience, will experience the advent, the arrival, the very presence of God in our lives. A God who lifts up, a God who restores, a God who shouts blessing over us. The blessing is in the kingdom. The blessing is in the advent. The blessing is in the arrival of God. The blessing, God with us in the midst 
of shame. God with us. What's the name of Jesus? We learn this, Emmanuel. If Jesus' name is Emmanuel, what's his middle name? With. God with us. Jesus' middle name is with. This is true for you and for me, even in the midst of our shame, God is with us. God moves toward us. God engages with us, is near to us and speaks into our shame. I wonder, we have to wonder, we have to wonder in the shame. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Isaiah 57, 15 says, for the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. What God is doing in Mary and Elizabeth's story is not only, it's not unique to Mary and Elizabeth. This is true for us as well. This is what God's been doing since the beginning of time. This is who God is. He advents, he advents in our shame. In a society of shame, both women, Mary and Elizabeth, were placing their trust in the word of the Lord. Not only did Elizabeth, through the power of the Holy Spirit, offer words to Mary of confirmation, she also offered consolation. Consolation. If we're going to wonder in this story, can we imagine what it might be like to put ourselves in Mary's shoes? To imagine the burden that this young girl is carrying, this teenager, this teenage girl from Nowheresville, Nazareth, is going to miraculously conceive and become the mother of the Messiah. Can you imagine the weight that must have rolled off of Mary's shoulders when she heard Elizabeth's greeting? Ah, a deep sigh of relief. Elizabeth gets it. The tears of joy and gratitude. Mary doesn't have to try to explain everything. Elizabeth already knows. Mary doesn't have to try to convince her of the reality. Elizabeth already believes. Every word that Elizabeth speaks, filled by the Holy Spirit, brought unspeakable comfort to Mary. Gosh, I just, this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, I want it to. I want it to enliven us. I want it to create awe and wonder. And yet this is who God is. This is who God's always been. God is a God of compassion. God is gracious and merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love. God knows just what we need and gives us the help and support just when we need it most. So what was Mary's reaction to Elizabeth's greeting? This is amazing. <laughs> Mary sings. That's her response. But not just any song. The, the song that Mary sings next is actually the first ever Christian carol ever written. It's the first Christian Christmas single ever sung. This is Mary's song of praise. In Luke 1 verse 46, it says, And Mary said, My soul... 
magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. She goes on singing, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and he has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and set the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. See, when Mary was greeted with grace, when Mary heard the shout of blessing and the reminder of who she really was, she internalized that grace. She internalized that truth and it transformed her fear of shame. It transformed her fear of shame into a hope and a promise. See, Mary was no longer carrying the fear of shame. No, she was carrying the blessing of the name. She was no longer carrying the fear of shame. She was carrying the blessing of the name. The name whose mercy would shut down every hint of shame for all people, for all eternity. Listen to what happens next. Verse 56, and Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and then returned to her home. So this all took place before we read that first story about this story from Joseph's perspective, the gospel according to Matthew. See, in the timeline, Luke 1, Mary left her hometown, Nazareth, in, in a hurry, immediately after she saw the angel, and then comes back to Nazareth three months later. We find ourselves back in Matthew chapter 1, where Joseph first learned that Mary was with child. Remember, how did Joseph learn that Mary was pregnant? Well, I wonder, after three months of being pregnant, did she need to tell him? (laughs) I don't pretend to know uh, what it's like to be pregnant, but I'm married to someone who knows what that's like. So ladies, I got to ask you, I wonder, was it the nausea that gave it away? Was it uh, her small baby bump maybe that gave it away? Or was she glowing? Or was it the fact that she had these midnight cravings for pickles and peanut butter? I don't know. I mean, you're like, wait a minute, Pastor. My Bible doesn't say pickles and peanut butter. No, it doesn't. (laughs) I know because the text doesn't say, doesn't tell us how Joseph found out. It just says that Mary was found to be with child but it's okay to wonder. It's okay to imagine. It's okay to put yourself in the scene. And I wonder, I wonder what Joseph's conversations would have been like when Mary took her extended vacation to Elizabeth's hometown for three months. Could you imagine? What was he talking about? Hey, where'd your fiance go? What's she doing? I wonder. I wonder what it was like for Joseph to learn that his girlfriend was pregnant. I wonder what it was like for Mary to have to break the news to Joseph. I wonder. As Mary is entering into her second trimester, does she need to even tell Joseph or is it obvious? And and when Joseph learned that she was pregnant, it's not so much that the how was important, but 
It's what Joseph did once he learned. We need to catch this. This is extremely important. Listen to Joseph's response to the pregnancy announcement. In verse 19, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, it says, Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. From Joseph's perspective, it was a complete scandal. Public shame would be guaranteed. If Mary ran and hid out of fear and shame in this moment, Joseph tries to duck and cover. Joseph does what we've been doing since the beginning of time. He tries to cover it up. To be engaged in the first century was to be in a binding contract. You know, for us, that's marriage. But to be engaged was the binding contract. And the only way to break that would to be have a divorce. And, and according to the First Testament, the punishment for being sexually promiscuous or to being found with child outside of marriage was not only considered shameful, but the punishment could be death. Mary and Joseph started their lifelong relationship with one another under these intense conditions. I mean, listen, think about it. Uh, Talk about the honeymoon being over, okay? Like they are not just debating about like how you're supposed to put the dishes in the dishwasher. They're not just talking about like um, how do you fold the laundry. They're not just uh, talking about how you clean the toilet. And here's a a hot tip for you if you're married. Um, Listen, if you start to criticize your spouse on how to fill the dishwasher, guess what's going to happen? You're going to fill the dishwasher. Um, Honey, I love the ways that there's that line down the center of my shirts. I love it. Thank you. I I love, yes, we can absolutely do a second load in the dishwasher, 100%. See, for Mary and Joseph, things got real. They got real, real fast. Joseph was faced with a no-win scenario. What am I going to do? Am I going to expose my fiancé to public shame and humiliation? Or am I going to divorce her quietly? It's a a lose-lose for Joseph. Public disgrace, that's what he said. Am I going to expose her to public disgrace? That's shame. And shame is powerful. Whether we carry it from something we've done or is cast upon us by somebody else, shame is destructive. And nothing good can come out of Joseph making a decision out of shame. Verse 20 says, but just when he had resolved to do this, he had already made up his mind to divorce her quietly. An angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Go down to verse 23. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they will call him, they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took her as his wife. Church, in a society of shame, Joseph, Joseph trusted in the word of the Lord. So when we live out of our shame, It's a dead end street. When we make decisions out of our shame, it will lead to destruction. So I wonder, how many of you are making decisions out of your shame? 
How many of you are making decisions out of the shame that you carry from a decision you've made or an action that you've taken or, or the shame that's been cast on you by somebody else? What's your relationship like with shame? Do you carry shame from your childhood? Shame that was cast upon you by some adult in your past. Maybe you carry shame from high school or something that you did in college and it stays with you and you carry it week in and week out. Maybe you carry shame from a decision that you made just 10 years ago, but it stayed with you for 10 years. Or maybe you're carrying shame from something you've done even just this year. I imagine that many of us are carrying shame of different kinds. But whether it's shame that we carry or shame that has been cast upon us, shame is powerful and shame is destructive. Nothing good will come from us making any kind of decisions about ourselves, about others, or about God out of a place of shame. So how do we respond? How are we going to respond this Christmas in the midst of our shame? Are we going to run and hide? Are we going to try to cover it up? Or are we going to try to trust? Are we going to trust in the word of the Lord? How are we going to respond to those who might be carrying shame? Are we going to cast more shame on them? Or are we going to be like Elizabeth? Are we going to shout a blessing into their life? Are we going to become a safe enough person? who can receive that news and speak God's truth and God's love into their life, the very words that enliven their spirit, that lift them up, the things that they need to hear from God. Are you going to be a messenger of blessing in the midst of shame? Ann Voskamp, author, says this, shame dies when stories are told in safe places. Isn't that true? Man, have you ever hid? Have you ever tried to cover it up? But then once you are actually able to share your story with someone else who's safe enough, doesn't that shame just fall on its face and die? It doesn't hold you captive anymore. Brene Brown says this, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy, let me, let me say that again because that's a big if, but you have to hear this. If we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. Let's not be a people who hide and cover. Let's be a people who trust in the word of the Lord. And speaking of God's word, I want to leave you with this. I want to share with you perhaps two of the most powerful words ever found in the history of language. That's a big statement. I believe these are two of the most significant words that we could ever know. Have I got your attention? <laughs> You're gonna wanna write this down. There's just two words, fairly simple. Two words, but God, but God. That, those are the two words that we find in this story that changes everything. Without these two words, we would not have the Christmas story as we know it today. Without these two simple words, Joseph would have acted out of his shame. Without these two simple words, Mary would have lived under this shame. 
And Jesus would have been born out of shame's destruction without these two words, but God. Shame does not have the last word God does. This isn't shame's story. This is God's story. But God, in the person of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, advents amongst our guilt, draws near to us in our shame. And where there is shame, God butts in. God butts in. I want you to place your trust in the word of the Lord. May the voice of God, the message of God's mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ silence your guilt and your shame. May the word of the Lord bring you peace. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand in awe and wonder that you would draw near to us in the midst of our shame. You do not run. You do not hide yourself from us, but you come. You come, you've come in the past. You come, you came as a person and you come to us even today in the midst of our shame. Would you speak to it? Right now, Lord, would you speak to our shame? Would you tell us who we are? Would you remind us of your love? Lord, would we be able to tell our stories and would shame no longer have power over our lives? We pray these things for your glory, Jesus. Amen.